Those of you who will be remaining with us in the sanctuary, if you would please take your copy of God's word, flip over to Leviticus chapter 2. Leviticus chapter 2. From the mouths of children you have ordained praise. There is a chuckle of delight that they are not in here for Leviticus chapter 2. No, I'm kidding. Leviticus chapter 2. As we continue our series together of seeing Jesus in the book of Leviticus, the gospel according to Leviticus, this morning we have a chance to see Jesus, our grain offering. So Leviticus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it, and he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And shall take it from his handful of its fine flour and of oil and of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar. An offering by fire of soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and to his sons. A thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. Now when you bring an offering of grain offering. uh, uh, When you bring an offering of a grain offering baked in an oven. It shall be of unleavened cakes, a fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafer spread with oil. If your offering is a grain offering made on the griddle, it shall be a fine flour, unleavened and mixed with oil. You shall break it into its bits and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. Now, if your offering is a grain offering made in a pan, it shall be a fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the, in the grain offering, which is made of these things, to the Lord. and shall be presented to the priest, and he shall bring it to the altar. The priest then shall take up uh, from the grain offering its memorial portion, shall offer it in smoke on the altar as a soothing, uh, as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron, his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, and you shall not offer up any in the smoke, any leaven or honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, shall be, uh, you shall season it with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Also, if you bring a grain offering of early ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring uh, fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire, grits of new growth for the grain offering of your early ripened things. And you shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it as a grain offering. The priest shall offer up and smoke its memorial portion, part of its grits and its oil and all its incense and the offering by fire to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truthfulness. Father, thank you that every part of your word as a gift to us has been inspired to make you known that we might understand you, that we might worship you, that we might honor you, that we might follow you, that we might be through grace, through faith, through repentance, conformed to the image of your son, Jesus, restored to the image bearing quality that we should have as those originally made in your image long ago. Father, I pray this morning that our hearts and minds will be open to seeing the glory of Jesus in this grain offering in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, a different kind of offering. My wife loves it when I call her out from the pulpit. It's her favorite thing. And so she asked me this week, she said, so, so Sunday, grain offering. I said, yes. She said, little less bloody than last week. 
I said, yeah, it's one of two bloodless offerings offered in the book of Leviticus. She said, good, because last week I was getting a little queasy. She said, so the rest of the time probably going to be a lot of blood. I said, yeah, probably, because that's just Leviticus. A lot of blood. When they built the temple, they built basically a channel to let the blood run out of the temple. They didn't have to do that with the tabernacle because it moved around and it just went into the ground. When the temple had a permanent foundation, you couldn't just let the blood keep stacking up. So they had to let it run out. They had actually created a channel way for the blood. That's how much blood was regularly running through the sacrificial system for the Hebrew people. And, the, and so I apologize in advance if you're a little queasy about the blood. But that's, it's, it's there. So we're, but this week you get a reprieve. We're going to talk about grain and bread. Everybody loves bread, right? Okay, so... Let's talk about bread. So this, the presentation of this grain offering, let's talk about how this was presented. How did this work? So as I mentioned just a second ago, this along with later the drink offering is a bloodless offering. There's no animal slaughtered for this particular offering. And, and that makes it somewhat unique among the offerings that are usually offered up in the Old Testament context. Uh, now, the key elements regarding the grain offering. Here are the main things that we need to understand about how this offering worked and how it was presented according to Leviticus chapter 2. First, this offering can be offered in isolation of a blood sacrifice. You can just bring this by itself. Like, you don't have to do it alongside of a blood sacrifice. You don't have to do that. It truly and really can be offered on its own as a grain offering. So uh, later when we do talk about the drink offering, you don't see drink offerings coming alone. Usually they're coupled with either a grain offering or a blood offering or a blood and or a grain offering. And so this one, though, is a legit, legitimately the only truly bloodless sacrifice because drink offerings usually are accompanied by meat offerings as well. And so this one can be brought all by itself. So that's that's something that's substantial. It's important. And we'll see why later. One portion of this offering is offered on the fire to the Lord. One portion of it. So there's one part that they keep kind of separated. That's usually the part that they put the incense on so that when it's put on the fire, it offers up. That smoke, that soothing aroma to the Lord. The other portion of this offering is given to the priests for their consumption. It's for them to eat. Now, we didn't discuss this. I was asked about it this week, but we didn't discuss this last time when we talked about the burnt offering. Because chapter 1 doesn't mention it. We find out later in Leviticus and in the book of Numbers that this is how it would work. But part of the meat offerings, not all of them, but some of the meat sacrifice offerings were similar They would put a large portion on the altar and have it completely burned up. And then another part would be left for the priest for their consumption, for them to have something to eat. The reason for this is the priest, if you'll recall, did not receive an allotment of land in the Old Testament context. They had a place to dwell. They had a space to live. But they didn't have the same kind of space to raise their own cattle and to raise a lot of crops. They could do a little of that, but not much. And so if they were going to be able to live, the entire tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, people had to bring meat offerings and grain offerings and leave part of it to the side for them to have to consume. That's also going to be very important in just a minute. 
Now, while there are different preparation methods of these grain offerings, if you notice, most of the grain offerings, except toward the end where people just bring the actual heads of grain, most of the grain offerings are brought already cooked. They either baked it in an oven, they cooked it on a griddle, they fixed it in a pan, you know, whatever. Everybody bakes bread differently, you know. And so these people would make the bread ahead of time, bring it in already usually prepared. That's how that would work. And so even though there's a lot of different preparation methods, all of the offerings came to the priest unleavened. There was no leaven in these bread, in this bread. Now, some of you think that's awesome. Personally, not a big, this moment, I'm glad to be a Gentile. Really not a big fan of unleavened bread. I'm all about that yeast and that's to make it rise. The bigger the bread, the better. Of course, you know, I'm from Norse people and we sacrificed our children to Nordic gods. So, you know, thank you, Lord, for inviting those who are far off in. So, this unleavened nature of the bread, though, is very, very important in the Old Testament. It should call to mind the bread of the Passover from the book of Exodus. Now, of course, later in Leviticus, there are some regulations about Passover and how Passover should be celebrated and those kinds of things. We'll get to that when we get to that section of Leviticus. But it should call to mind the unleavened nature of the bread, the Passover experience that they had. And of course, there's a couple of reasons listed in the book of Exodus why that bread should have been unleavened. But one of them was the haste of the moment. You're going to have to leave Egypt quickly. And you need to recall to mind the great things that God did by his mighty outstretched arm. And all the Egyptian deities that he overthrew through the plagues that he sent through the land. And you need to be prepared. Sandals already on your feet, staff in your hand, ready to go because he's going to let his people free. The absence of leaven is thematic throughout the Old Testament narratives And Old Testament worship. It's very important the absence of leaven in the grain offerings in this particular setup. Also, and here we see this in verse 13 of chapter 2. Every grain offering had to be seasoned with salt. Now you're on to something. And I'm going to remember this in a month when I have to go back and see my doctor. How's the salt intake going? No, man, my bread is seasoned with salt, brother. Keeping the law. Can't cut that stuff out of my diet, so... And if my bread is pasta and potatoes and a whole bunch of other stuff, it's all seasoned with salt. So anyway, allegorical interpretation. So, but every one of them is seasoned with salt. You could not present a grain offering that was not appropriately seasoned with salt. You say, well, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It's actually a massive deal. And we'll see why again in just a second. But I want it to lay out kind of the presentation. What did this look like? Because just scanning the room and knowing the global context, it's probably been a hot minute since anybody in this room went into the tabernacle of the temple and offered a grain offering to the Lord. And so we probably are slipping our minds a little bit about how it actually worked and functioned. Because, it, you know, it's been a little bit like 2000 years since anybody's done this. And so we need a reminder of what this looks like and how this worked. Now, there's some nuances to be found here in chapter two about this particular offering. So. The first one that I want to point out to you is the language of the word offering that's used here in Leviticus chapter two, verse one. It says, now, when anyone presents a grain offering, that that two word 
in English, grain offering is actually just one word in Hebrew. And it is not the same word for offering that we saw last time in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 2. I mentioned to you that that word is the word for Corban. It's the word that Jesus uses when he rebukes the Pharisees in the New Testament about the offering that they made so they wouldn't have to take care of their parents. It's an incredibly common word, that word Corban in the Old Testament, but it's mostly just used in Leviticus and in the book of Numbers. This word is a completely different word from that. If you're interested, it's mikcha. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, first row, I'm sorry. I just did that to you. Um, but it's not unique just to Leviticus and Numbers, basically like the other word was. It's used probably three or four more times than that other word for offering is throughout the Old Testament. And what's really intriguing about that word, and this is very important for the point that we're about to get to about this particular kind of offering. The first time that we ever see that word that's translated grain offering here is found in Genesis chapter 4. Please turn back to Genesis chapter 4. I want to read the story to you and I want you to see why this is this is very Helpful and intriguing and interesting. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived, and she gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. That word for offering there is the same word in Leviticus chapter 2 that's translated grain offering. By the way, Cain did not offer grains here. He offered fruit. It's very important to know that this word is only translated grain offering if the context makes you translate it that way. Which in Leviticus it does because it's an offering of grain and bread and that sort of thing. The word can mean other things besides just grain offering. Because notice, it says here... That Abel, on his part, also brought firstlings of his flock and their fat portion. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Same word. And he's talking about animals. But for Cain and for his offering, same word, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And as you know from that story, this story of Cain and Abel, that there's a violent interaction that takes place between brothers. Over how they worship God. Now that's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day. But I just want to point out to you that the first murder committed that we have recorded in human history. Was one brother killing another brother because of how they got sideways about how they worshiped God. Hey, God appreciated your offering, but he didn't have regard for my offering. And because God wants me to change my behavior, but God found your behavior acceptable. I now hate you enough to kill you. It all stemmed from an act of worship that God found pleasing in one and displeasing in the other. And rather than transforming their behavior to match up with that which is pleasing to God, I'll just get rid of the problem, the guy that's worshiping God the right way. I'll just hate my brother who's sitting across the aisle in the same area that I am, rather than repenting and rather than transforming and rather than conforming to the image 
that God would have me to be. And if you can't see a practical application of that, I feel sorry for you. And if you can't say amen, say ouch. Because churches across the world are filled with people murdering each other in their hearts because of how the other person is choosing to worship God. There's nothing new under the sun. But it's important to note that this kind of offering found in Leviticus 2 first shows up in the story of Cain and Abel. This is the same kind of offering. The grain offering that's presented in Leviticus chapter 2. It has a similar purpose. Now, uh, just to let you know, there's other places where it shows up. When Jacob was attempting to appease his brother Esau after they had been separated for all those years. And he had had the two wives and the two wives maidservants and had all of those children. And he had become a wealthy man, but he knew his brother still desired to kill him. At least that's what he thought. He sent out, it says, all of these presents ahead, which, by the way, not only included treasures and livestock, but also people. Word for offering there, this same word. I'm sending a present, an offering to my brother Esau, and maybe he'll be appeased and his anger will be subsided. Same word. It's also used by Jacob by way of his children when the famine comes on the land and they send a gift to the king of Egypt that they do not know as his son that's still alive. As a gift to the man who's going to help them during the time of famine. Same word. Carry this gift with you and give it to the man. Same word. All throughout the Old Testament, there are many cases where kings are presented with these gifts of honor and peace and fellowship. Sort of this notion of breaking bread, if you will. I'm going to give you an offering. I'm going to give you a gift. And it shows that I honor you, that I want to have peace with you, that I want to have fellowship with you. And I don't want us to be at enmity with each other. That's the meaning that's endowed with this word way before the book of Leviticus shows up. And then when we get to Leviticus chapter 2 and it talks about the grain offering, the bread offering brought to God, it's this word that's used. It's this word that's used. Why? Because I want to be at peace with God. I want to honor God. I want to be in fellowship with God. And, you know, God's funny in his providence. I was supposed to preach this sermon like two weeks ago. And I got sick and I could preach for two weeks. And so today we celebrate the Lord's table together on the day we're preaching about the grain offering as a picture of having fellowship with God. God's way cooler than me. Just know that. In case you were unaware, be just hot take. God plans out sermons way better than I do. But there's a reason why even in the Lord's table that we will celebrate today, there's a picture of breaking bread together. Why? It's a demonstration of peace and of fellowship, and of honor between people. We are honoring each other as we honor the Lord by declaring our peaceful fellowship with each other that's been brought about by the sacrifice of Christ. And you see that kind of picture endowed in this language of Leviticus chapter 2. This offering is not necessarily an offering for sin. This offering is an offering of fellowship. And peace with God. That's what this is. 
Because that's what the offering was in all the other contexts that it was used in the Old Testament. I want to be at peace with you. I want to honor you. I want to have fellowship with you. So what do I do? I bring food. You know what? You can go to any culture anywhere in the world and you know what they do to show honor and fellowship and peace? They bring food. Universal language is the stomach. It just is. When somebody's sick, what do you do? Let's get the meal train going. Somebody has a baby. Somebody dies. Somebody's had a hard time. Somebody loses a job. What's the first go-to? And it's not just the Baptist thing. What's the first go-to that everybody says? You know, somebody ought to cook them a, a casserole. Somebody ought to bake them some bread. Somebody ought to cook them something on the grill. You know what you just did? Everything they did in the book of Leviticus. A grain offering, a meat offering, a conglomerate of those things. Why? Because it's a picture of peace and fellowship and honor. That's what's going on here. And so I want us to then now make the transition. I want us to make the shift to see Jesus as our grain offering. And so the the obvious one, the simple one, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But the metaphor of Jesus and bread is too abundant to miss. Like it's all over the place. Like if you don't like immediately go, oh yeah, Jesus is bread. He's bread of life. He's bread from heaven. He, you have to come eat his body, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the Lord's table has bread as one of its elements. And that represents the body of Christ. And uh, oh, yeah, br- Jesus is bread. Like. That's just so easy. We're, we're just not really going to spend any time. Hey, J- Jesus is bread. Amen. Amen. OK, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. That's the one that's easy. Now, let's start unfolding the rest of Leviticus 2 to see some of the things that we might be missing. First, as I adamantly pointed out just now, this offering is an offering of peace, of honor and fellowship. File that away. We're going to unpack that in just a second. But where I really want us to spend a lot of time this morning Go directly to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. Let's read that again. It says, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God, pause, it's found three times in the Old Testament. That phrase of a salt covenant. Three times. One is here. One is in everybody's second favorite book of the Old Testament, Numbers. And then the third is everybody's about sixth favorite book of the Old Testament, Second Chronicles. That's right. I just named out all the books most people don't read from the Old Testament. And we're going to unpack that because it's really important to understand what's going on with this covenant of salt. It shall be a salt of the covenant of your God And it shall not be lacking from your grain offering with all your offerings. You shall offer salt. So first we get to the covenant of salt in a second. First, it must be seasoned with salt is the language that it uses. We're going to start doing some Bible drill stuff. Flip over with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter five, somewhere on the mountain. Matthew chapter five. Beginning in verse 13, right after the Beatitudes, 
right after how can you be happy in the kingdom? Jesus makes this declaration. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. There's this salt metaphor for the kingdom of God. We find it here in Matthew. We find it in the cross-referencing passages in Mark and in Luke where this sermon is presented in slightly different ways. There is a picture of saltiness being a reflection of properly living out kingdom life. You have been seasoned with salt. That's what Jesus is basically saying here. You're the salt of the world. You're the one that's bringing the preservation and the flavor and all the other things that salt does to this broken world. But if you lose your element, your component of saltiness, you are now ineffective for what you're supposed to be about in kingdom work in this world. Very similar to if you didn't put salt on this offering. And then the priest went to eat it. Even they are acknowledging that unleavened bread that doesn't have something on it is awful. They don't want to eat that. It needs to have something that gives it punch. We're what gives this world punch. That's what Christians do. We reflect the glory of Christ to a broken world. And if we don't do that, it's worthless. Completely worthless. But I want you to make note of a different one. Flip over, if you will, to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And I want to pick up in about verse 38. The, the key that we really want to get to is verse 49. And then there's this repetition of what we just heard about salt losing its flavor. But I want you to see, beginning of verse 38, this dire warning that God gives. And John said to him, teacher... We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Now, I would have to preach five or six more sermons to cover all of this. And I'm not going to. I've told myself Leviticus is not going to last eight years. But I want you to note the similarity of what's happening here in Mark nine with Genesis chapter four. There's somebody doing some spiritual thing in a way that I didn't think that they were necessarily supposed to do it. There was this conflict between Cain and Abel about how they were serving and worshiping God. John is wagging his finger very much like in that situation. Hey, is he supposed to be doing it like that? Is that really the best way? How come he's not with us? How come he's doing something different? How come he raises his hands when he sings instead of keeping them down to the side where he's supposed to? I saw this really funny meme the other day from this Baptist guy that I know. And he said... You wouldn't wave your hands around in the air like that if they were holding a hymnal like they were supposed to. You know, I mean, that's just kind of like, you know, it resonate. Look, some of y'all, that's resonating with some of y'all. You know, people are all laughing, but for very different reasons. And so it's just proving the point. And so you have this issue of worship and service and work for the Lord, very much like Genesis chapter four. And it says, but Jesus said, do not hinder him. For there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ. Truly, I say to you, he will not lose his reward. 
And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go to hell into the unquenchable fire. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life lame than having two feet for you to be cast into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to uh, stumble, throw it out. For it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And we'll pause right there for a second. Jesus is describing... Profane versus holy. Remember, there's no in-between. It's either acceptable to the Lord or it's not. And it would be better for your body to be maimed, but for your whole being to be acceptable to God, than for your body to stay whole and you remain profane in the spiritual sense. That's what Jesus is saying. Sounds an awful lot like Leviticus. And then he says that you say, Philip, you're stretching. Then he says this for everyone will be salted with fire. Leviticus two. You will not offer a grain offering. And what is a grain offering? An offering of peace and fellowship and honor to God without putting the salt on the portion offered in the fire. This is almost a summary quotation of Leviticus 2. Here at the end of this section of Mark chapter 9. And he then ties it to the same thing about salt that we just read in Matthew in summary version. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. And notice the argument that he makes. And be at peace. What kind of offering is it? It's an offering of peace. And be at peace with one another. Friends, this is a profound thing. Listen, the, the salted life, the life salted with fire. It's the crucible of the life of discipleship. And friends, what is the peak demonstration that someone is living a life rightly in discipleship? How will they know that you are my disciples if you love one another? If you have peace with each other. If you honor each other, if you are in fellowship with one another. It's a beautiful thing that's happening here. To be in fellowship with God through Christ is to be profoundly aware of your need of transformation. And that transformation is most readily displayed in the heart attitude that we have towards others. Love God. Jesus, what's the summation of the law? Love God. Love people. And this grain offering did just that. I love God. I'm bringing an offering of peace to him. And as such, my fellow man who has need will participate in that offering and he will have food to eat. I'm at fellowship with my God and I'm at fellowship with my neighbor. But then there's also the salt covenant language that's used here in Leviticus chapter 2. That language of the salt covenant is first used here in Leviticus 2, chapter, thir- I mean, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, with no explanation whatsoever. It just talks about a salt covenant. It's just there. Just randomly, out of nowhere, salt covenant. It's like, okay, what in the world? Praise be to God, there's other books that have been written. 
And at least two of them make reference to this and give us a little more insight. We're not going to turn there, but if you were to go to Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, it talks about it again. And all through Numbers chapter 18, there is a description of the everlasting promise of God for the priesthood to receive an allotment from the things offered for their survival while they live in the land of promise. So all of the offerings, it's listed out in Numbers 18. When people bring this kind of offering, the priests get this much of it. When people bring this kind of offering, the priests get this much of it. When the people bring that kind of offering, the priests get this much of it. So that you will always have an allotment. You will always have a portion. And I'm making this an everlasting covenant with you, the priest, a covenant of salt, it says. So that you will never be without. Now, I want you to note that we are a royal priesthood, it says in the New Testament. That's going to be really important in a minute. Have you ever noticed the language there? Royal priesthood. It's really important for the rest of the story. But God has made a promise to his priests, which he calls all of his saints, his holy ones, his people. That I have made an everlasting covenant, a covenant of salt. That your spiritual needs will always be met. You will forever. Listen, listen to what the, the listen to the promise he's made to the priesthood. And this gets carried over into the New Testament reality of us being priests of God. The priests. Never own the land. Never work the land. Never raise the herd. And they Always have everything they need. Does that sound remotely like anything that Jesus has done for you? There is no earning your place in Christ. You don't work for it. You don't till it. You don't water it. You don't plant. Christ gives you everything you need. Just like the priests. In the Old Testament. Everything. And you know where he gives it to you from? Those things that only belong to him. What is it that's being brought to the priest? Offerings of worship to God. That's not mine. That doesn't belong to me. And you know what God does? He gives us a portion of what is only his for our benefit. Kind of sort of sounds like he clothes us in his righteousness and seats us in heavenly places on thrones and crowns us with life and glory, maybe just a little. And then finally, in Second Chronicles, chapter 13, verse five, Second Chronicles, chapter 13, verse five, I am I am I am going to go over here. There's civil war, of course, there is. Like if anybody ever asks you, hey, tell me what's going on uh, in this chapter in the Old Testament. If you say the words rebellion, idolatry or war, you're going to you're going to pass most of the test most of the time. Like that's usually what's going on. Every once in a while, you need to say, hey, the people were walking rightly with God. But hey, if it's an option on like a multiple choice test, pick it last because it's rare. Somebody was in rebellion, somebody was doing idolatry, somebody was civil war, there's something, war with another kind. Somebody was enslaved. Like, this is what's going on in the Old Testament. So there's this civil war that's breaking out. 
And there's a war between clans and who's going to be king and all this different kind of stuff. And then in verse four, it says, then Abijah stood on the Mount of Zerarim in the hill country of Ephraim. And he said, listen to me, Jeroboam and all of Israel. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule? This is the kingship, the kingdom over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. Well, three places in the Old Testament where it says that. Leviticus 2, with no explanation. Numbers 18, for the provision for the priesthood forever. And Second Chronicles chapter 13, the forever kingdom of David. Covenant of salt. Say, so, Philip, great, I'm lost. Good. Bringing it all together. Let's help see Jesus in all of this. God made a covenant of salt with the people. That covenant of salt includes an everlasting promise of peace, honor, and fellowship. Because that's the kind of offering the covenant of salt was mentioned in for the first time in the Old Testament in Leviticus 2. This everlasting promise of peace, honor, and fellowship also extends to the provision of the priest. And it also extends to the forever rule of the family of David as kings in Israel. Flip back. Last Bible drill, 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. I want to see how we tie all of this around the reality of the royal priesthood that's been given to us because of the great royal priest, Jesus Christ himself. And then David, verse 1, came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And to Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and there's no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, let no one know anything about the matter on which I'm sending you and with which I've commissioned you. And I directed the young men to a certain place. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there is no ordinary bread on hand. But there is consecrated bread, grain offering Leviticus two. That's what this is. There's consecrated bread only for the priest. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said, surely women have been kept from us previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men are holy. That was an ordinary journey. How much more today will our vessels also be holy? And so the priest gave him the consecrated bread for there was no bread there, but for the bread of the presence which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. And it's implied and understood that David gave this bread to those young men and they all ate it together. Friends, I want you to note that David eats the sacred bread, the bread of promise that was only for the priest and he gave it to his men. Jesus is our covenant of salt and our grain offering. He promises us through his work on the cross, everlasting peace with God, honor before God and fellowship with God. We are his royal priesthood. We are King David and the priest 
met together, eating bread that is only allowed for one particular kind of person that is now offered up to everyone who has great spiritual need. We are promised a guarantee of spiritual allotment and provision by Christ to feast at his holy table as priests and kings. Jesus as the greater David, fulfills the role of the eternal king and the greater priest. He not only has the right to the bread, as he is the bread and the priest, but he has the right to share his bread with whomever he pleases. And friend, he invites you and I to come into the holy place through a covenant of salt and Feast on the bread of his own body. And he crowns us as kings with a crown of life and glory. And he clothes us with righteousness in the garments of the priesthood for a sacrifice he himself has made. And all he asks us to do is to taste And to see that the Lord is good. That's it. He dusts off a seat at his banquet table. And he invites us to eat holy bread with him. In peace and in honor and in fellowship with our God. It's amazing. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the covenant of salt that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that he seasons with salt those things on the fire as a soothing aroma to God Almighty. And thank you that he invites us in as the great king and as the great priest to eat at the holy table. Those consecrated things that are only for the priest. Because he has made us a kingdom of priests. He has separated us out. He has called us to a great life of worship and sacrifice unto him. He honors us and he has peace with us and he has fellowship with us. Those who were far off, those who were separated from him. And he welcomes us in and he calls us children. He calls us co-heirs with Christ. And he showers on us glory. And he loves us with the same love that he loves Jesus. And he allows us to feast on Christ. And be satisfied. And we are not dismissed in anger or wrath. But rather we are welcomed in. As children and friends. And he lavishes us with grace upon grace. Father, forgive us. When we leave the gift of this holy bread sitting on the table. When we like Cain. Become angry with our brother or our sister. Rather than living at peace and in honor and fellowship with them. Father, forgive us. When we are not willing 
to truly break bread with one another. Father, forgive us when we claim to love you who we have not seen and we hate our brother who we have seen. Forgive us. For Father, this picture of the grain offering is a picture of peace. It's a picture of fellowship. Father, it's a picture of the table that we're about to celebrate together now. Father, may we glory in the love of Christ who gives us a heart of love for one another. And we ask it in his name. Amen. I invite you at this time, we prepare to take the table together. The elements are